Philly, you are so wonderful and interesting. You deserve a local news podcast all your own. Check out the John Cast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. That is the highest compliment that anybody could give anybody. You know, if you've been to the Hall of Fame and you've been through it, it's a history of the game. And then all of a sudden, right there is your plaque, and people can now push a button and watch my speech if they wanted to. There's nothing like it, really. And our guest this week is Herb McGee, who just retired after 54 years as the head men's basketball coach at his alma mater, Jefferson University, which was formerly known as first Philadelphia Textile and then Philadelphia University. He's a Naismith Hall of Famer who finished his career with 1,144 victories, second most in NCAA history, behind only Mike Krzyzewski. Herb, thanks so much for the time. Anytime, Matt. You know that. You're a couple months in as we're talking this to retirement. Does it feel any different? How is it? No, it doesn't feel any different because uh, I would be off this time anyway. I imagine when it's going to feel different is next year when basketball practice starts and uh, and the team meets back at school. I think that's when it'll feel different. Kind of talk to me. What kind of crystallized that you decided this was the time to step away? Well, uh, during COVID, when we did not play at all, uh, we just practiced a couple days a week. Uh, My wife, Jerry, and I talked about it. And I just said, I think it might be time for me to step aside. And one of the big factors was the fact that uh, I knew, because I was told by the university, that Jimmy Riley would get my job. And uh, I thought that was the ideal person to take over because he and I have been working together for the past 15 years. And every single year I have been given him more responsibility and he's proven to me that he will be ready to step into this job without a problem. So that's part of the reason, uh, part of the reason right there. Plus you get to the point um, we've never been at the, at the university ever fully funded. So it was difficult to win once we got past our conference and to win on a national level and you can't, you know, we don't have full-time assistance. We don't have the same number of scholarships. Everybody has our recruiting budget is non-existent. Our, our uh, regular budget is one of the smallest ones around. So became increasingly more difficult uh, to, uh, to field the team that had a chance to compete on a national level. We certainly can compete in the East, but, you know, my whole thing has always been get us into the NCAA tournament and let's see what happens. So that that led into it, too. Plus the fact that I sat down with Jerry and, and she and I talked. I said, you know, 54 years as the head coach, I think I've given it enough time. So it's probably time to hang it up. And, you know, I won't have any problem at all with retirement. I'll know I'll miss the practice part, uh, the the uh relationship with the players and my assistant coaches, I will miss that. Uh, But as far as the overall scheme of being college basketball coach at the top, you know, has the head coach, it's no longer right for Herb McGee. You mentioned Jimmy Riley, who's taking over. And obviously I know Jimmy and he's been with you, as you said, for, you know, 15 years. For people that aren't familiar, just kind of talk a little bit about what he brings to the table because as you mentioned behind the scenes he's been so important to the program yeah and behind the scenes and gradually you know up front uh, when we're at practice I give him more leeway to discuss strategy and to talk to the players about individual uh, workouts and individual things that I've given any of my other assistant coaches over the years so I have complete and other confidence in him He's, he's what I would determine and explain as a basketball guy. The guy lives and breathes basketball. He's working all year round in his recruiting. He's working all year round, making sure the players do what they're supposed to do in the offseason and during the season. He works extremely hard at, at uh, scouting, uh, breaking down tape. 
he and I are in discussions all the time. We're in discussions all the time about our next opponent, how we should defend. And I had complete and utter confidence in him. Uh, and as I just mentioned before, he will do a terrific job because he's used to it already because I've given him so many, so much responsibility. I actually changed his title about three or four years ago to associate head coach. And that's the way I view him. And I'm sure our players view him the same way. So let's talk a little bit about your life in basketball. What is your earliest basketball memory? As a kid growing up in West Philly, uh, basketball was everything. We had a basket in the back alley. One of the families put up a basket. Uh, we knew how to sneak into the gym at St. Francis de Sales. There were playgrounds all over West Philly, King Sessing, Sherwood, Tustin, where we could get to if we could pick up a ride or if we had to walk, we could do that too. And everybody played basketball. And in West Philly, if you were on the team at West Catholic High School, you were considered a player. It didn't matter how good you were, but if you were on that team, everybody knew it. So growing up and playing at St. Francis de Sales CYO, and then when I finally got to West, that was the the big thing for me as I made the freshman team. I didn't play very much, but I made the freshman team, played JB as a sophomore, and then played uh, on the varsity as a junior and senior. And where I met some of my all-time friends, um, Jimmy Lineham and I have been friends for over, oh my goodness, like 70 years, uh, close to 70 years. And Jim Boyle, God rest his soul, he and I were extremely close, as well as John Beck, Jim Flavin, who has passed, uh, and a number of other guys from uh, from West Catholic. So if, ask, ask me if I remember any games at West Catholic 60-some years ago, and I would remember all of them. Um, I remember how we did. I remember if I had a good game. I remember if Jimmy Lynham had a good game. So growing up in West Philly, basketball was it. So I spent my time, and I knew right away I was not going to be a great rebounder or a defender because of my size and stature. So I figured out that the best way to become an effective basketball player was to become a great shooter. And that's what I spent my time on. And in the playgrounds in West Philly, there's always an empty basket. And I would go with a friend of mine, uh, different guys at different times, and I would shoot for hours. And what I would do is record my shots, the number, how many I made, how many I missed, and more importantly than that, uh, where they missed, if they missed long, short, right or left. And the next day I'd come back and work on my mistakes. So I got to the point that I could, you know, drill it and make shots without even no question about it. If I was open, the ball was probably going to win the basket. So that's how I made my name in high school. And that's how I made my name in college when Bucky Harris recruited me. Talk to me a little bit, because over the years, you know, we've talked sporadically about the, the playgrounds and playing playground basketball. It was really something special when you're growing up. And I mean, it it meant something to win on those playgrounds. Without question. Every every uh, every school, every playground had a league, and we were in it. Now, back in the day, I played with the older guys. And all the older guys, they always played for a bar. There was a name of a bar, Cherry Tree Inn, uh, Pennsylvania Railroad Post. Uh, the name of the team was always some bar because they had to sponsor us. But I was a 14, 15-year-old kid playing with these older guys. And I think that really, really helped me become a good player. Uh, but it was very competitive to the point that what we would do is if we were playing at Sherwood and our other part of our team was playing at King Sessing, let's say, uh, there were no cell phones then, but there were pay phones outside the rec center. And we would station a guy or the older guys would station a guy at the pay phone and they would call periodically and say, how's your team doing? How are we doing? Uh, we're up 10. Okay, we're losing by five. Uh, send Herb and Bobby Gormley over here. And Bobby Gormley was a West Catholic guy like me. And we would get in the car and drive to Sherwood or King Sessing or Tustin or someplace and try to help that our team, same same team, but try to help our team win that, that, that game also. So it was an exciting time and really a lot of fun. And the biggest thing for me all day long, uh, even when I had a summer job, was to make sure that the weather was nice. Uh, just pray that there was nice weather because we would have a game and they were all outdoors. And then I graduated to play at Narbus, which was the best league. And uh, the Narbus league was, people go to the Narbus league to watch us play. And there might be three, four, 5,000 people at the game in the summer. 
because everybody who was anybody played in the Narbeth League or the league up at Ann Champlow's up in Northeast Philly. So it was an exciting time. And then during the year when the basketball season was over, there was a, such a thing called the gold medal tournament. And the gold medal tournament was, again, the same type of thing, individual teams coming together. And most of the games were played at Lincoln High School or some of the other rec centers around the area. And it culminated in a championship game of which there would be capacity crowd to come watch the game. So independent basketball back then was huge. It's not as big anymore because of the advent of AAU basketball. But independent basketball back then, uh, if you went to a game to watch at Tustin Recreation Center, there might be five, six, seven hundred people there watching the game. And at Narbeth, there might be a couple thousand. And Champos, there might be three or four thousand. So you got used to playing in front of crowds at the same time. So it was an exciting time and a time where I really became a much better basketball player as well as a shooter. You mentioned Bucky Harris. He was the coach at Philadelphia Textile at the time, and he would be your coach in college. How did you come together with him? What was your first interaction with him? We're playing at 69th and Guyer Finnegan Playground in the, in the championship series, which is best of three. And Bucky had his whole team in there, the textile team, which probably at that time was a violation, but I, I don't think it bothered Bucky. So we're playing uh, our team versus his team, and I'm scoring pretty good in the first game. And Bucky's playing. He was a tough player, good player at Gettysburg College. And I go in for a layup and he wrapped me around the pole, took my legs out and wrapped me around the pole. So I go down, uh, a fight ensues, not with me in it, but a fight pushing and shoving type of fight. They break it up and we finish the games and we finish the uh, the games the next two, next two games and we happen to beat his team. And next year we're playing, never forget this, we're playing uh, at Monsignor Bonner High School. And... I'm walking to the game down the path and right beside me or, or just a bit away from me was Bucky Harrison. I said to somebody I'm walking with, I said, that's the guy that cut my legs out. I wonder what he's doing here. And he was there to see me play because my coach, Jack Devine, brought him in the locker room afterwards and introduced me to him. And I said, yeah, I already know Mr. Harris. And uh, so Bucky started talking to me and never even mentioned the fact he almost killed me during the game. But uh, he was smart enough at that time when he recruited me to recruit my uncle, who was our legal guardian. My, I was uh, orphaned as a young guy at the age of 12, and I was raised by a Catholic priest, Reverend Edwin Gallagher, who was my uncle, my mother's brother. And he, he had a brother live with us, his own brother. And then uh, he would come home two or three times a week using public transportation and make sure that the family was safe and sound and everybody had what they needed. So Bucky was smart enough to recruit my uncle. And one day at dinner, I'll never forget this. My uncle said to me, all right, Herb, you're going to go play for that nice Mr. Harris at that Philadelphia textile. And that was a done deal. So I just did what he said. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. You had a ton of success as a player at then textile. Was there an adjustment for you at first or was it pretty much you felt like you, you fit in right away? Yeah, I fit in right away because uh, Bucky told me, when we started practice my freshman year and the way I would express it, he gave me the green light to shoot anytime. And he said, and that light will be on for your entire career here. And that's all he had to tell me because if your coach is showing you that much confidence in you, I think it adds to your ability to do whatever he's asking you to do. So I had success immediately. I was uh, made the starting lineup from day one. And uh, almost never came out of a game unless I was in foul trouble, which was rare because I didn't really guard anybody. So it was more it was more if I committed a foul on offense. So it was great playing for Bucky. He was he was a great coach. We had terrific teams, made the NCAA tournament, uh, actually got to the Elite Eight at Evansville. And we played my senior year and we played a team by the name of Oglethorpe. Uh, and was they were like six eight, six eight, six nine, six ten, six five. We were like five ten, five ten, five eleven, six two, and six two. And the game went down to the end, and we lost because they never shot the ball. Uh, we lost thirty six, thirty five. Uh, actually, on a foul shot with uh, almost no time left. So Bucky did a great job coaching us. And then when I graduated, he got me a job at the school. I went to him and I said, Bucky. Uh, I, don't, I have a job in industry, 
And it was a good job. And he said, well, what's wrong with that? I said, I want to be a coach. And he said, okay, I'll get back to you tomorrow. He went to the then president, Dr. Bert Hayward, a wonderful man, one of the most beautiful men I've ever met in my life. And he came back the next day and they created a position for me. I was going to be the JV coach. We had a JV team at the time. I'm the varsity assistant. Uh, I was going to teach phys ed classes. I was going to be the cross country coach. Uh, later on, I was the tennis coach. And after that, I became the golf coach. So I coached almost every sport there besides basketball. But uh, what was really sick, a, a big part of my success was the fact that I had my own team from day one because we fielded a JV team, played some of the big five freshman teams and some other schools that had JV teams. So we would play 14, 15 games a year, and that, that was huge for me. But I owe everything that I've done in basketball to Bucky Harris. Uh, God rest his soul. He, he and his family, he took me in as if I was his son. And he uh, he raised me. So I'll be forever indebted to him. Time for a break on one-on-one. We will have more with Hall of Famer Herb McGee right after this. And we are back on one-on-one, continuing our conversation with Herb McGee, who just recently retired after 54 years as the head men's basketball coach at Division II Thomas Jefferson University. Tell me a little bit more about your scoring style. Obviously, your shooting is known everywhere, but what else? You know, there are a lot of people that can shoot, but they don't put up the numbers that you did in college. What else made your offensive game special? Uh, Well, I was, uh, again, now Bucky gave me the green light. So it wasn't a matter of, you know, taking X number of shots. He said, you're open, you shoot it. And he set the offense up. I would come down and start maybe on the left-hand side and I'd get a screen on a handoff. Uh, and then I'd get another screen and finally maybe even a double screen. And my job was to circle the court with the ball until I got something that I liked and then shoot it. Plus, I would play the, the point of the zone and I would have the, the freedom to sprint the length of the court if they scored or didn't score. And and my teammates would throw ahead to me. So uh, I could shoot. Everybody knew it. Everybody tried to stop us. But it was difficult for them because Bucky did such a good job getting me open. And at the same time, we had a couple guys on the team over the years that were also good shooters because it made it difficult for the other team to put two guys on me. So a fellow by the name of Charlie McLaughlin, a guy named Bobby Simons, uh, guys like that could really shoot. So they were open a lot because uh, I was being double teamed. Uh, but it's something that you fight through. And if you're smart and you're aggressive and you know how to play, you can score no matter what the situation calls for. And I mentioned your numbers, more than 2,200 points. You averaged more than 29 points in a season. And I think people need to put in context, this is before the three-point shot. What would the three-point shot have done for you? Well, um, you can imagine most of my shots were probably behind the three-point line. Uh, I didn't drive too much to the basket, although I could. But if that three-point line was available when I played, I, I couldn't even tell you how many points I would have scored because I would probably have at least another thousand, at least maybe more, uh, because I would go searching the three-point line if I played with the three-point line, because we have our shooters do that now. Uh, look for the three-point line, know where you are, and make sure you're behind it. And actually, when the three-point line first started, it was only at the top of the circle which was 19 feet, nine inches. Now it's 22 feet, nine inches. And the NBA three is like 24 feet, nine inches. So 19 feet, nine inches to me is almost like a layup. So uh, I would have certainly looked for it a lot. And I think I would have scored a lot more points. Now in between your playing days at textile or wrapping up, you, you, you start the coaching, but you were also drafted by the Celtics in 1963. Uh, and, but you didn't pursue it kind of, how did you find out you were drafted? And I know you were banged up at that point and that played into the decision, but kind of walk me through how you found out about the Celtics and your, your decision to, to not go that way. It, it wasn't something that you would see now. Like when you see the draft, uh, the draft is a big deal. Uh, I found out because someone called me because it was in the paper that I was drafted in the seventh round, which at the time was like the 62nd guy taken. And uh, right away, the speculation was, 
uh, could I play there? Well, unfortunately, I was going to go, but unfortunately, I broke a couple of fingers on my right hand playing in the summer league at the time. And my Bucky Harris got a hold of the uh, Boston people and told them that I wasn't going to come up. And But the, the truth is also, if you look back, when I look back, and I knew it at the time, the backcourt for the Boston Celtics was, at that time, Bob Cousy, Hall of Fame, Bill Sharman, Hall of Fame, Sam Jones, Hall of Fame, Casey Jones, Hall of Fame, John Havlicek, Hall of Fame. So the opportunity to make that team was slim. So I've always had that great excuse about breaking two fingers on my right hand. But the truth of the matter is it would have been extremely difficult to crack that lineup. There's no question about it. And and also something that a lot of people don't understand, that my starting salary with the Celtics, if I had made the team, which would have been a long shot, would have been about the same starting salary as I got for coaching and teaching at Philadelphia Textile at the time. That the salaries were nowhere what they are now. Uh, Paul Arison, actually, who's in the Hall of Fame, one of the great players of all time, Paul Arison, actually, when the Warriors uh, shifted to San Francisco, did not go because he had such a good job in the city. And he was only making, uh, my guess, maybe $15,000 with the playing for the Warriors. So uh, it's not like it is now, whereas if the team moves, you're moving with them because you're making so much money. So it wasn't one of those deals. I've, al- I've always liked the fact that I was drafted because I have it in my, uh, you know, biography, or if you would. And everybody always mentions it. And I always tell the same story about my hand. And I also it also explained at the same time that they had too many players in the backcourt for me to crack that lineup. Have you ever had any regrets to that? No, not at all. I was actually going to, I got drafted to play in the Eastern League. And the Eastern League at that time was just a a very small step below the NBA. The NBA might have had seven teams at that time. What do they have now? 30 or something like that? Right. Yeah. So you can imagine uh, seven teams, each team carrying 10, maybe 11 guys. What's that? 70 guys. Whereas now in the NBA, there are hundreds of guys. Uh, but the Eastern League had great players in it. Paul Harrison, actually, when he did not go to play for the Warriors, played for the Camden Bullets. Uh, Sonny Hill, who everybody knows in Philadelphia, played, was a terrific player. Uh, all kinds of guys that were great players, guys I could name that people wouldn't remember unless they're maybe in my age. Guys like Jimmy Huggard, who was a great player. He played at Villanova, and then he ended up playing in the Eastern League. So I was going to play in the Easter League, but all those guys in the Easter League uh, were nuts. And by that, I mean, I scrimmaged uh, a couple of the teams and I'm playing against one guy who was a very dear friend of mine. And I go up for a jumper and I hit a few jumpers on him. And next thing I know, I'm on my rear end. He knocked me down and he said, Herb, I'm going to do that every time you shoot. I need this job and I can't have you try to stay, steal this job from me. So I said, okay, I understand. And that was the end of me because, you know, at the time I was not much heavier, not much heavier now, but I was probably 150 pounds. So it was a league where there would be a fight almost every game. And that's not my style, but it was a heck of a league. A lot of really good players in that league, just a tremendous amount of good players in that league. So I was just happy that I made the team, but I told the coach at that time, Jerry Rullo, Philadelphia guy, I told him at the time, I said, Jerry, I'm going to concentrate on coaching. And he said, I don't blame you. So you concentrate on coaching. You spend a few years as Bucky Harris's assistant. You take over in 67. Uh, what was the discussion conversation like when Bucky let you know that he was going to step away? Uh, a couple of years before that, Bucky retired. And I'm, I had been like two years as his assistant. And, uh, I thought, okay, maybe I'll get a shot. But he brought, he decided to bring Jack McKinney over from St. Joe's, who was the freshman coach at St. Joe's. And I was disappointed I didn't get the job, but it was a big break for me uh, because Jack, as it turns out, as everybody knows, was a heck of a basketball coach. And he taught me a lot about practice organization, utilization of your practice time, uh, offenses and defenses. And I learned a lot from Jack. Jack went back to St. Joe's because Coach Ramsey retired and he became the coach of St. Joe's. But so Bucky decided to unretire. And when he unretired, it was to coach his son, 
buddy who was an all-city player from Roxborough High School. Uh, and I stayed on as the assistant coach. And then in the middle of the year, he said, I made a mistake or coming back. He said, it's your job next year. And he had that kind of power. So I took over that following year and, you know, and we did. And then we had good players and uh, we took off. We had good success right away. And then uh, my third year as a head coach won the national championship. So, you know, I can, you can imagine a guy at the time, I think I was 27 or 28 years old. And uh, <clears throat> a reporter asked me, we won the national championship easily. We won by, I always remember the scores. We won by 27, 18, 48, 16, and 11. The closest game was a national championship game with Tennessee State. That was 11 points, but we had control of that game almost the entire game. And somebody asked me after the game, that's the way to go, coach. Like, I said, yeah, it wasn't that hard. We'll probably do it a lot. And that was like 50-some years ago, and we haven't been able to do it since. So, But that was a great basketball team that I had, uh, very dedicated, very good players. They played together, and they had the advantage of having an entire front court. They were all seniors. And uh, as you well know, Matt, the, uh, the advantage of having guys playing and staying in the program for four years, which happened all the time back then, but not as much anymore, but it's, except on our level. But anytime we've ever had a senior-laden team and you've done our games for years, you know how good our success was. You know, even that team we had a couple years ago that did not play in the tournament because of COVID, that was a terrific basketball team. And, and mainly reason, main reason was there were four seniors on that team. So uh, it's, been a, it's been a struggle to get to the NCAA tournament. We've been able to do it quite a few times, but it's, it's, it's really tough that to try and win uh, anytime, like you want watching the NBA playoffs now, and that's like the game's over last night, but they still have maybe six more games. And in college basketball, that's why what Mike Krzyzewski has been able to do at Duke is unbelievable. Now, he's had great players over the year, but still, when you lose, you're out. And he won five NCAA championships. That's unbelievable to be able to do something like that, to repeat. Uh, I received a small award from the Small College Association this year at that award, they asked me to say a few words over Zoom, which I did. And my first thought was for the guy at Northwest Missouri State, Ben McCollum, who just won the third straight NCAA Division II championship, which is absolutely incredible. And because I know I've been there and that's really a difficult thing to do. So my congratulations to him was the very first thing I talked about when I was presented with this award. So, you know, that's... It's difficult. It really is. Uh, but when I first started, we had guys there that I had coached from the JV team. John Parentosi, Jim McGilvery, God rest his soul, Carlton Poole. I had two good guards and more than two good guards. I had Michael Rourke and Bruce Shively. And you think about those teams back then, man. Every single guy, every single guy was from the area. You know, St. Tommy Moore, Overbrook, Cardinal O'Hara. Archbishop Kennedy, Springfield, Montgomery County, and even the subs, Jimmy Lynham's brother, Michael, who played at Bonner, uh, everybody else, Joe, Do Joe Corbin, who played at Doherty, et cetera, et cetera. They're all from the area. And now if you look at the roster that we have now, we may have one guy from the whole area, and everybody else is from somewhere up, up and down the East Coast or Midwest. We had a kid from California. We had a kid this year from France. So it's, it's become very, very different than when I first started. There's no question about that. You win that championship, the 69-70 season. I'm just curious, like after you win it, do you notice a difference in the attention the, the, what, that you're getting, that the program's getting, the following season, how other teams are preparing for you? Did it, did it change dynamics for, for you as a coach and for the program? Yeah, I, a little bit because we'd already been successful. Bucky had taken a couple teams to the Elite Eight. Uh, Jack McKinney's team was in the NCAA tournament. So everybody knew who we were. Uh, we just took it a step further by winning the national championship. Uh, and it did help recruiting at the time. But, uh, you know, it, it, one of the difficult things in Division II basketball is to recruit. And the reason being because every kid thinks that he's a Division I player. And, uh, you know, some kids will just ask you, are you a Division One school? 
and they don't even care about any other part. And of course, we had to tell them the truth and we're not. So uh, that's been a difficult change as far as I'm concerned. And now the way it is now with the portal, which I think is the worst thing that's happened to college basketball and to college athletics in my lifetime, because uh, there are guys now that are playing at four different schools in four different years. And I think that's just ridiculous. And uh, I think that's going to hurt the game. Now, the, the other part that's changed is the NIL. And I think it's good that kids be able to make money off their image and likeness. Uh, but it does mean also that the bigger schools uh, who have more probably wherewithal to get those NIL contracts uh, are going to out-recruit some of the schools. It's become more that than it is actually uh, how good your team is, how, what, how good a job you do as a coach. It's more, well, he's got more players because they can afford to pay them. And I think that's that's a bad thing for college basketball, I really do, even though I think it's fair to the kids. But the biggest problem, I think, in, in today's world is the uh, today's college athletics is the portal where you just go in the portal and, you know, just change schools right and left. So you're having all this success. I'm sure your phone's ringing from other places. I'm curious, now that it's all over, when you look back, what's the closest you ever came to leaving? Nothing. Uh, very, very little. Very, not, not very close at all. I had a Division One job that was offered to me. I didn't have to interview or anything uh, in the East Coast, and it was offered to me twice. And it was just mine for the taking. And I did not want to do it because I wanted to stay in this area. Uh, I had interviewed at a couple of big five schools. Uh, if the Villanova job had been offered to me, I probably would have taken that. Uh, but it was not offered to me. There were some other things that went on. Uh, and it was not offered to me. And Roley got it. And the thing I remember the most about it was at that time, the Villanova job paid about a thousand or two thousand dollars more than I was making at Textile. And now it probably pays four million dollars more than I'm making at Textile or Villanova or Jefferson. So that's the one thing that has changed is the amount of money that's being spent on coaches. Uh, but I didn't really come real close. I had a chance to go into the NBA with a couple guys. And I never really gave that too much thought because they were all, all those times that were at um, uh, the the assistant coach level. And I didn't think that was right for me to, to be an NBA coach uh, as an assistant. So I didn't really, uh, to be honest with you, uh, even the job that were offered to me, uh, another job where the athletic director called me and said, Herb, this is your job. And I said, well, you take me off because I'm not interested. And it was a big time job. And they actually, the team that, it was actually a hit, a made the final four like two years later because they were loaded with players. So I've never really regretted doing what I did. And I think anybody that does, that's not a bad, that's a bad way to be. I think, I think I've never second guessed myself. I've always felt that I did the right thing. So 54 years past winning a national title. When you think back, to all those games, all those players, what are some of the other favorite memories that come rushing back? Just the relationship that you develop uh, with your players and with your assistant coaches. I've always considered myself a very good judge of character. And I think it's helped me in my recruiting. And it really has helped me in my selection of guys as my assistant coaches. I, uh, they don't get paid. Our assistant coaches, they don't get paid. They get might get $2,000 a year. Uh, and we've tried to get it, but the, the university chooses not to. Uh, but if you look back at some of the guys that I've had as assistant coaches, uh, Dick Delaney early on in my coaching career, he was my assistant for a, quite a while. Uh, he also coached the baseball team and took them to the tournament. He was an assistant coach with Division One soccer team at, or at school. And then he went to Westchester and is the all-time winningest coach ever at Westchester University. And he and I have been friends for a number of years, but he's been retired for a few more years than me. 
Um, Billy Lang, the, the head coach at St. Joe, started his career with me. Stevie Donahue, the head coach at Penn, started his career with me. Mike Ruan, who has the all-time record for wins at Bridgeport, who just changed jobs now to a junior college in Florida. He started with me. Jesse Bowser played for me. Uh, he was the head coach at Chestnut Hill. Chuck Hammond was my manager. He's the, he was the head coach at Goldie Beacon and is now a vice president there. And I could go on and on with the number of guys uh, that have been my assistant coaches. So I think that's been a big thing for me. And also in my recruiting of athletes, we do our homework when we recruit athletes. And we just don't take a guy because he happens to be a good player. We want to make sure that he's going to fit in with the rest of the guys on the team. And if he's a good team guy, a good, a good family guy, then he's going to fit in with the way we like to coach and the way we like to play. So I think that's one of the reasons why we've been successful over the years. How did your coaching style change from year one in 1967 to year 54 in 2021, 2022? Not much, not much. The, the rules make a change. Uh, the 30 second clock, it came in as a 45 second clock. And now it's a 30 second clock. Uh, that changed the way I coached because I was a, a big fan of Dean Smith at, at North Carolina. And one of the things that I did quite a few times in different years was hold up four fingers for four corners, just like Dean Smith would. And forcing teams to come out of what the defense they were in. And you can dictate the flow of the game provided you have a lead. So that, that has changed uh, the three second the three-second, excuse me, the three-point rule has changed. So that has changed the way you coach because, as I said, we go searching for threes with our good shooters. Uh, but basically, overall, uh, I've always been a big, big defensive coach, uh, working hard on man-to-man -man defense. I bought a pamphlet that Bobby Knight put out when he was in Army called it's like two-dollar pamphlet called Let's Play Defense, and I've used the drills in that pamphlet up until the day, up until this past year on teaching of defense. So uh, I've always been a big fan of watching now, instead of buying books and pamphlets, of buying tapes from different coaches that I want to see what they're doing. Uh, I've been a big fan of Tom Izzo's at Michigan State. I have tapes that Jay has put out at Villanova, who I think is probably the finest coach. He retired now like me, but he's the finest coach, I think, in, in that with coach in the last X number of years. Uh, guys like that, Dean Smith, Bobby Knight, I buy their tapes and I study them and I try to incorporate some of the stuff that they do into our system. Uh, but as far as changing my attitude about the game, the rules have changed it. But as far as my attitude about the game is, the one thing I do differently, and you know this because you do our games, is I'm not a big subber. Uh, you know, we have guys, uh, I looked at the national championship game this past year, because it was the, the university put it out uh, and uh, they, they did it as more like a fundraiser and had people all over watch it. And the one thing you notice is I didn't sub at all in that game. Our guys played 40 minutes and you've done our games where, you know, maybe somebody might get in. And I've always coached the way I wanted to be coached. And Bucky never took me out of the game. Uh, he let me in the game. So I always give guys a chance to get the starting lineup. And once they're in, I give them a chance to, to uh, perform. Uh, if you're not in shape when you're in college, there's something wrong with you or there's something wrong with the coach. He didn't get you in shape. So you should be able to play 40 minutes without question. And uh, that's one of the things that I do differently. I think there'd be a lot of guys that would uh, argue about that. But, you know, I don't argue with what we've been able to accomplish. How did a guy who, as you you yourself said, didn't play a lot of defense when you were playing, how did you become a coach whose bedrock is the defense that you're going to play? That's a great question, and I think the answer is I started coaching, and I could see I could see right away what was important. Do you know what I mean? Uh, so. What I knew right away, and again, now I got that pamphlet and started studying it and watching it and, and putting it into play in my own practices. And I, I think what, he, what the whole idea with Bobby Knight was he teaches toughness. And I think that's what you want your players to do. So uh, 
it was a no-brainer for me once I started coaching. I could see right away. See, I, I got a big advantage when I had my own JV team. I could I could experiment with different things. I could uh, uh, try different things in the zone. I could play press. I could do whatever I wanted because I knew I was someday going to be a head coach on the varsity level. And I knew that all I'm doing there is gaining experience for my players and for myself. So that was a big plus for me. It wasn't as if I took over. Like Jimmy next year will take over and his first game will be his first game as a head coach, period. And he'll do a good job with it. But at that time, if I had became the head coach when I was 26 or 27 without ever coaching a game, I think we might have struggled a little bit to start off with. But I had already had three or four years of experience under my belt. And uh, not only did these, did the uh, we have success and I could see that I could coach, but also we had some players on that team that stepped up and played on the varsity. Actually, the entire front line played for me when they were freshmen on the JV team. So that was a huge help for me. So I think the defensive part comes just from being on the sideline, being a basketball coach. You know you got to try to stop the other team. We need to take another break. We will continue our chat with Herb McGee right after this. And we're back. Time to continue our conversation with Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer Herb McGee. 2011, you're inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. What did that mean to you? That is the highest compliment that anybody could give anybody, and no matter what sport you play. If you're in your sports Hall of Fame, there's, there's nothing left. You know, I have received awards uh, over the years and very nice awards and very appreciative when I receive those awards and very prestigious awards, but nothing will ever top or ever come close to being into the uh, Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame. And I always tell people who ask me that question, have you ever been there? You know, if you've been to the Hall of Fame and you've been through it and you walk through it, it's like it's a history of the game. And then all of a sudden, right there is your plaque. And people can now push a button and watch my speech if they wanted to. They have all the speeches of all the people that have ever been inducted into the Hall of Fame. So that is the number one thing. And you know what? When I went in at the dinner in Houston where they announced it, or they, they, they announced that I was going in, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was there, and Moses Malone was there, and Roy Williams was there, and a few other Hall of Famers were there. And the way they got up and spoke about the when they got into the Hall of Fame, you know, arguably, you could say Kareem is in the top two or three players that ever played. And he spoke about the Hall of Fame very reverently, as did Moses, as did Roy Williams, who's one of the greatest coaches of all time. And I could see the way they felt about it. And once I got up there and went through the three-day ceremony, uh, I felt the same way, that that is the... Uh, the highest honor you can receive as an athlete, a coach or a player uh, or a contributor as you can receive in, in your sport of your choice. So there's nothing like it, really. What was your favorite part of coaching? Was it on the sidelines, close game, late in the second half? Was it practice? Was it making adjustments at half times just for like the pure kind of fun of the job, what would be at the top of the list? Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a great question. And I've thought about that before. And uh, especially now that I'm no longer going to do it. And it's the relationship you develop with players, uh, both on and off the court and the effect that you can have on them, not only on the basketball court, but in their whole lives. Uh, but as far as the, the most enjoyment, that you could have is the game is going on. It's a war. There's about a minute to go in the game, less than a minute. And then something happens in the game where you're going to win it. And it's clear you're going to win it. And you're sitting there watching the end of the game, knowing that you have just won a game that was, you know, the term in, in coaching is it's a war. And that's the most exhilarating part about the coaching aspect for me. And then after the game is over, when we go into the locker room and I had developed a, a X number of years ago, a little dance routine that I go through. And uh, if the players think it was a tough game and we won the game, they will get out of the way 
and I will do this little ridiculous dance that I do. And they go nuts and they, they just they start cheering. And I, it's, it's something that I know I will miss, the, uh, the thrill of winning a close game and the exuberance that occurs after the game with you and your players and your assistant coaches. So <clears throat> that'll be the part that'll be the most uh, uh, missed. But great question. Which way does the arrow point? Does it mean, do you love to win or more or hate to lose more? That's a great question, too. And I'd say they're about equal. Um, sometimes you lose a game, you played hard, and the other team beat you. Uh, sometimes you lose a game where you come out and you didn't play as hard as you think they should have, and the other team beats you. That's very difficult to handle as a basketball coach because you right away you start thinking, did I prepare them correctly and so on. Uh, but winning a game, no matter who it's against or no matter how many points you win by, is really an exciting thing. It really is. It's something that uh, if you ask me a question about whatever year it was and you mentioned who was on the team, I could probably tell you about almost every game that we've ever played. And we have played, you know, we won over 1,100 wins but we also have lost over 400 losses. And uh, if you ask me what's do I feel the most, the wins or the losses, I would say the wins. Uh, the losses I'll blame on somebody else, like Jimmy Riley or somebody. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's a great question. But you know, the thing I remember the most is being, being excited in a close game when you're about to win it. And we had success when I first started coaching with the big five schools. So uh, people always say to me about the best wins you ever had were in was a national championship game. No question about it. But other than that, we 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 handled ourselves pretty well with the big five schools. And those games, when they were coming down to the wire and we're about to beat them, you can imagine uh, the exuberance and the excitement that was going to occur in that locker room when that game was finished. So. Uh, Winning those games. See, you're making me. You're making me wish I hadn't retired, Matt. <laughs> so, but winning those games was exciting. But and winning any game is exciting. But the most exciting you can be is when the game uh, really means something. Conference championship, NCAA tournament game. You know, one of the Division One schools that we played, etc. You are renowned. We talked about your shooting as a player. You've not just uh, kids that have come through the program on shooting, but you've also uh, helped other players, professionals with shooting. What is the, if you're explaining shooting to someone who has no concept of, of, of basketball, what is the, what are the critical things you have to do to be a good shooter? <clears throat> Great question. And here's the answer. You need these, not get into the technical part. We do that in a second, but you need these things. Here's the first thing. The person receiving uh, the, the assistance must agree that they need the assistance. All right, that's number one. And that's big because a lot of kids, oh, no, no, my shot's fine. You know, I, I can really shoot. And so even though they can't, uh, I've seen that with some NBA players that I've worked with. And uh, it, it, right away you go like, all right, this is, I'm not going to help this guy very much because he doesn't think he needs it. But if they feel they need it, and then the person delivering the message knows what they're doing, and I think I do. And then if they're willing to practice, it's not just a one-shot deal or a two-shot deal. If you are willing to practice shooting, then if you follow the things that I will show you, you will become a better shooter. I say there's no chance that you won't, but you have to have those ingredients in it. You must admit that you need it. You have to know that the person teaching you knows what they're doing. And the last thing is you must practice the stuff that I'm showing you, you should practice. Now, the technical part of it is the number one thing would be the grip. Make sure your hands are on the ball in the, in the right place. So if I was having a basketball right now, if I looked down at my hands, if I looked at my shooting hand, I would see all of my fingers except my pinky. We always use the expression, hide the pinky. Because if you hide the pinky, if you show the pinky, your elbow will flare. So everybody's always asking me about Ben Simmons' shot. And if you watch Ben Simmons' shot, his elbow is out. 
And all I would do with Ben Simmons to make that possible was to bring his hand in and make sure that when he looks at his hand, you can't see the pinky. The second thing is with your guide hand's thumb, it should be aimed towards the basket, not up in the air, not down to the ground, but towards the basket so that when you shoot it, you shoot the ball through the guide hand. So the ball is shot with the shooting hand, but goes through the guide hand. So technically speaking, when I first meet somebody to teach them, we will work on those things. Shooting hand first, guide hand second, legs, how to use your legs third. And the last thing is, what do you aim for? What you What is your target? So if you go through those four things and you do the drills and you do them religiously, not just when I happen to be there with you, but when you do them religiously, you'll get better. There's absolutely no question about it. We've talked about you spent your entire career at, you know, what is now Jefferson, but more kind of on a deeper level, you've spent your career in the Philadelphia basketball community, because I think Philadelphia is unique for basketball. I don't think there's another there's another situation that has the what Philadelphia specifically at like the high school college level, uh, the community with the coaching, what has it meant to you to kind of be in the middle of that for your entire career? Well, it's been fabulous. And, you know, when I first started as the head coach, the Philadelphia sports writers would have a luncheon every single week at a hotel downtown or over at Ballot country club and all the coaches, not just the big five coaches, everybody went to this luncheon. And after lunch, each coach would get up and explain what has happened with his team for that week. And it happened every single week. So when I first started coaching at the luncheon, you can imagine Harry Litwack, Hall of Fame, Jack Ramsey, Hall of Fame. After a few years, Chuck Daly, Hall of Fame. Uh, right, let's see. Uh, LaSalle coach, Tom Gola, Hall of Fame. So right through that, you became acquainted with all these coaches. You listened to them talk about their teams. And then you had the opportunity to explain what your team was all about. So it was a great, exciting time. And it hasn't happened for a long time. I always wish they had brought it back. So that was a big thing. You know, when you could get a chance to go over different things and talk strategy with, I'm sitting there talking strategy with Jack Ramsey. You know, and, and then I'm talking, I say something to Harry Litwack. And then Tom Gola, who was my hero when I grew up watching Tom Gola play at LaSalle. So that was a, a, a huge thing, a huge thing for me. And I think it, it helps mold you as a basketball coach when you can see all these outstanding players, or excuse me, outstanding coaches, and you're rubbing elbows with them every single week. Herb McGee, this was magnificent. Thanks so much for taking the time. Anytime, Matt, you know that. And I enjoyed uh, your presentation. We watch it all the time because we use it in our scouting. And you guys, the guys, whoever you've had up there with you, it's a real professional job. It really is. And it makes it it a lot easier for us to watch and scout, especially when we win. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank Herb McGee for taking the time to chat. Now, if you like the show and you want to help us out, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon 1060. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.